Amen. All right, Malachi chapter 2. Remember, as we talked about last week, Malachi is living around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, so for those of you who are following along with the adult Bible study guide right now, this is kind of 4th century B.C., etc., um, or I should say 5th century B.C. So the people of God have been, they have returned from Babylon. They have left their land of captivity. But as we talked about last week a little bit too, here, let's... Sorry, you guys are seeing stuff. Man. Anyways, as we talked about a little bit um, last week too, the reality is that this remnant people, their hearts, though they have physically left Babylon, spiritually their hearts are still in Babylon. There are things that are going on in their lives that are indicative of a relationship with God that is indifferent. And like we said last week, it's more characterized by leftovers than giving God our best. And so today we're going into chapter two. These people who had been giving, who hadn't been giving God their best, instead giving God their leftovers, um, God is going to kind of get to the pathology of this. Like, what is really going on underneath the surface? Where did this all come from? Why would they continue to persist in worship that is really just surface level? Why would they continue to persist in worship that is anything but the best? And if you were to ask yourself that question, if you were just to kind of picture what it was like for those people, I mean, what kinds of things would, would come up? What would, what would you point at as not just a symptom, but as a root cause? And you don't have to necessarily answer that out loud, but God is going to get to that here in chapter 2. And so let's go to it. Malachi chapter 2. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. The Bible says this, And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. All right. So starting off, just right off the bat, God is going to get to the first of two factors. And I'll just kind of give you a preview. It's spiritual leadership and spousal loyalty. Those are the two underlying factors here. Okay. And right off the bat, he gets to spiritual leaders. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to where? Take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. I will send you a curse, excuse me, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already. Why? Because you do not take it to heart. God gets to the very kind of, I guess you could say the bottom of it, but first he points to the top of it. He addresses the priests, the spiritual leaders. He's looking at those who are supposed to be setting an example of what it is to give God their best. But really, their characterization is they're not taking God's commandment to heart. They're not taking it to heart. In other words, it's just on the outside. It's not internalized. These spiritual leaders have taken God's instruction, taken God's command, even though they've been called to be spokesmen, even though they've been called to be representatives of God even. And yet they've, they haven't taken it to heart. And their, their life, their leadership is far from the ideal. In fact, in, uh, in verse 5, actually I'll, I'll go to verse 3. It says this, ooh, strong words. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. Ooh, the refuse of your solemn feasts and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue. All right, God has a specific covenant with the sons of Levi. If you remember the sons of Levi, why it was that they were the chosen priests. In fact, remember uh, in Exodus chapter 19, when God brought the children of Israel out to Mount Sinai, he actually called all of the people, he called them a kingdom 
of priests. His ideal was that all of God's people were to be priests. All of God's people were to be representatives of his character, communicators of his, of his instruction. But in Exodus 32, Moses is told by God, hey, the people are restless. <laughs> There's a noise at the bottom of the hill. Moses goes down. He's got the Ten Commandments in his hands. And you know what he finds? He finds the children of Israel worshiping an idol, an idol of their own making. Moses gets so upset, he throws those things on the ground. They shatter to pieces. He makes the people drink, drink the, the Ten Commandments as it's been ground. I mean, not the Ten Commandments, the, the, uh, the golden calf. I mean, you remember the story. And Moses actually kind of draws a line in the sand, so to speak. He says, if, if you're on the Lord's side, get on this side right here. And who stands up? Do you remember who it was? It was the sons of Levi. It was the, whole, the tribe of Levi. They were zealous for the glory of God. This is the covenant, he says, that my covenant in verse 4 with Levi may continue. And then in verse 5, he continues to talk about this special arrangement that he has with the sons of Levi. My covenant was with him. Now it goes to a singular person. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. Very interesting. It seems like this is a, almost a direct reference to what God spoke about one particular son of Levi. His name was Phineas. Do you remember him? And Phineas, uh, this, is, this is Numbers chapter 25. Let's see here. Numbers chapter 25. Uh, the context of this story, the Moabites, I think it was, had seduced Israel uh, into intermarriage. And um, there was one particular moment where, where they were making God's desire so clear, like, hey, this is a wrong relationship. And someone actually takes a Moabite woman into his tent right in front of the spiritual leaders. And Phineas is, we don't have to get into the gory details of, of this story, but Phineas takes a stand. He says, no, this is not, not right. And God's response to Phineas is this, Numbers 25, verses 11 to 12. Since Phineas was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. In other words, Phineas saved the lives of the rest of the children of Israel by doing this, right? It says, therefore, tell him I am making what kind of covenant? Do you see it? My covenant of peace with him. Did you hear that there in Malachi chapter 2, verse 5? My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. In other words, this priestly role was to produce life and peace amongst the people. And yet when God is talking to these priests, they haven't taken his instruction to heart. They're far from the ideal of a covenant of life and peace. The priestly ideal that was modeled by the sons of Levi in Exodus 32 and Phineas in Numbers 25, this has been totally thrown out the window. What's going on here? Back to Malachi. God is continuing to talk about what, what should be. What should be. Verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. You see, God's expectation for the priests, the, the sons of Levi, was an expectation that truth and knowledge of God would be in their mouths, not just on their lips, but also in their lives. That they would walk in a way that would turn other people from iniquity. I love that part in verse 6. And turned many away from iniquity. Verse 7, it says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, 
and people should seek the law from his mouth. So these spiritual leaders ought to be placed in, in, the, in God's community as, a, as kind of a resource, as, as um, people who know God so that they can know God too. The lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is all that should be true of God's spiritual leaders, but they've fallen far from this ideal. And that's why God is directly addressing the issue of the remnant first with the spiritual leaders. In verse 8, notice how God just kind of puts up the mirror in front of them, allows them to you know, check it out, have a reality check here. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. So this is what's actually going on. You know, this covenant of peace that God has in mind, that the spiritual leaders would be leading other people to a knowledge of the glory of God. While they hold the position of spiritual leadership, these priests could care less about the practice of spiritual leadership. And this, the result of this, it causes many. Did you see that in verse 8? You've caused many to stumble at the law of God. Wow. And this is uh, pretty sobering. The reality is that when leaders fall, it's fatal. <laughs> when leaders falter, it proves failure for everyone. Why is that? It's because by definition, leaders have followers. <laughs> right? By definition, leaders have followers. So if this is the direction that the leaders are going, if the leaders are going in the direction of spiritual infidelity, guess what direction everybody else is going, right? One, um, one author says it like this, whether you are a leader in your church, your small group, or your family, when you allow sin to live in you, it will infect those who respect, admire, and Im- imitate you. I mean, this is the, the stark reality of, of leadership generally, but spiritual leadership even more so because the consequences are life and death, really. And this isn't true, like, like this, this quote says, this isn't true just of clergy, right? This isn't, just, this isn't true just of, of conference workers. This isn't true of just of, of uh, appointed officers in the church. This is true of all who have been entrusted with spiritual influence. And the reality is, like God's, Bible, or God's biblical ideal for the priesthood, it wasn't just supposed to be a, a, you know, a singular group demographic amongst God's people. It was supposed to be God's people. That's why the New Testament, Martin Luther, he kind of championed this idea of the priesthood of all believers, not just some. So when God is talking to priests, don't just kind of tune out. It's like, okay, that's, that's just, no, that's me. That's me. And so this is true of all those who have been entrusted with spiritual influence. And I would say particularly those who have, you know, appointed offices or those who are priests in the home but truly it's the priesthood of all believers that is that is uh, pro- proving this this fatal effect amongst god's remnant people malachi continues and he asks this question in verse 10 and it's kind of like a breakup point kind of a a uh, a transition point because he's kind of going from focusing on the priest to now broadening broadening the inquiry okay in verse 10 the bible says Have we not all one Father? 
Has not one God created us? And he's asking these questions to kind of cause us to pause, reflect, and really dig deep. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? The obvious answer to that question is supposed to be, yes, yes, we do have one Father. We do have one Creator. And the implications are, we are one family. Yeah? And so, the next half of the question, why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. So two things here Malachi is doing. So this verse here is highlighting one, who God is to us. He's our father. He's our creator. And who we are to each other, or at least who we're supposed to be to each other. Right? That's why he's emphasizing this. We're supposed to understand, hey, we're we're all part of the same family. We're brothers. We're sisters. We're family. And there's a significant, I don't know if you could say it, a cause and effect, but definitely an interdependence, a correspondence of dynamics here. Because the second question or the, I guess the third question in verse 10, why then? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? In other words, when we profane this covenant, when we, when we break up our relationship, our commitment to God, we end up breaking our relationship with those around us. You see the connection? Why, pro, why do we deal treacherously with one another, horizontal plane, by profaning the covenant of the Father's vertical plane. In other words, when we don't give God our best, there are casualties in our spheres of influence and relationships. If you're asking yourself, man, why is there so much brokenness and heartache and tension and stuff uh, uh, on this level? Malachi is asking us, well, look this way, you know? At some level, there's, the, there's a brokenness in our vertical connection, in that commitment with God. When we don't give God our best, there are casualties in our spheres of influence and relationships. And that's exactly what God turns to in the next few verses. He's going to start digging deeper as to what these casualties in our human relationships look like. In verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. This is strong language, right? Treacherous, treachery, abominations. Now keep reading here. It says, For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. Probably a reference to temple worship. Probably a reference to the sacrificial services and stuff. But notice how he gets from that vertical dynamic to the horizontal. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Where in the world did this come from? (laughs) How in the world do unadvisable marriages actually affect our covenant of peace with God? Apparently, you know, when when we're talking, and we're going to explore this a little bit more, and I don't know if I have all the answers, but what I do want to notice here is that God is not just about, I mean, he's not talking about marrying the daughter of a foreigner and things like that. He's not talking about that in terms of ethnic purity, but in terms of spiritual faithfulness. We see the difference there? Yeah? I mean, Solomon, exhibit A, right? (laughs) Solomon, he he indulged in uh, marriages that were totally unadvisable. Marriages with foreign nations in order to, you know, kind of develop some peace treaties and things like that. But that led him to spiritual unfaithfulness. This post-exile community was, was beginning to be 
guilty of the very same issues. But not only were these unadvisable marriages, there's a second thing. In verse 13, notice this. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. I don't know if you're catching the, the hint of what Malachi is getting at. So they're, they're having the, the name or position of spiritual leadership. They're having the name or position as God's people, yet they're intermarrying and they're giving their alliances and affections in different directions. And then they offer their sacrifices and they cry over the altar saying, why isn't God accepting our worship? In other words, they're weeping and crying that God hasn't accepted their worship without taking ownership of their own shortcomings. It's a repentance that's just kind of for show. Not, not for show, but for show. Oh, no, Anyways, okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was terrible. Okay, so they're, they're not, in other words, they're worshiping, they're pretending repentance. It's, it's an inauthentic repentance. I don't know, maybe this is a more simple way. They're going through the motions. That's it. They're going through the motions without any true heart devotion. They're, again, they haven't taken these things to heart, just like God said at the very beginning of the chapter. You have these things, but you're not taking them to heart. They hadn't internalized it. And then he's going to probe a little bit deeper because it's not just the fact of any advisable marriages. It's not just the fact of intermarrying and things like that, but it's the, how they got there. It's the process through which these intermarriages took place. Notice verses 14 and 15. I'll just read those two verses and then we can kind of pick it apart here. It says, Yet you say, for what reason? Again, kind of that question of surprise, that personal obliviousness to what's really going on. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Okay, so apparently the real treachery has been how they've dealt with their former wife, with the wife of your youth. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Again, wheat bread texts, okay? So let's try to chew on this just a little bit here. The issue is not just the fact that they've intermarried. It's actually how they've gotten to those inadvisable marriages. So how was that? According to verse 14, in order for them to marry the wife of a foreign god, they actually had to dismiss the wife of their youth. Do you see what just happened here? Their alliances, their allegiances, their affections are all in different directions. And they say, oh, in order to, to satisfy that desire, let me cut off my commitment here. In verse 15, the Bible says, but did he not make them one? God is reminding them, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. you can't just treat marriage like this. So they, number one, they forsook the wife of their youth, but then two, they forgot that marriage is a miracle of oneness wrought by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a legality or a piece of paper to discard. This is where God is going. He's like probing really, really deep. I don't know if you can feel that. And then at the end of verse 15, notice the passionate appeal 
of God to these people. Therefore, my Bible says, therefore, take heed. Does anybody else's Bible say it differently? Does anybody use a different verb there? Guard. Yeah. Okay, okay. Guard yourself. Yeah. So there's this idea of keeping or watching over. It says, therefore, take heed to what exactly? What exactly are supposed to guard? Their spirit, right? Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Take heed to your spirit. Can we just sit on that phrase? Take heed to your spirit. Uh, man, this is, this is an appeal not just for those who are married or soon to be married or used to be married or whatever. This is, this is an appeal for all of God. We need to take heed to our spirit. Take heed to your spirit, the Bible says. That verb, take heed, it really means to guard, to watch, to preserve, to stand as a sentinel over, to keep something. Both keeping something in the sense of, uh, I would say, keeping something in the sense of keeping it from going outside of the boundaries, right? But also keeping in the sense of keeping up, upkeep. What's really interesting, when you talk, talk about this idea of taking heed to your spirit, there's two nuances. One, there's the protective sense, okay? The protective sense of keeping within the set boundaries. Let me make sure it doesn't leave this particular area, etc., But then there's also the productive sense. In fact, the very first time this verb keep or guard or take heed is used, it's in Genesis chapter 2 when God places man in a garden and says, keep it. What's he supposed to keep? He's not supposed to keep the garden from running away. No, he's supposed to keep it, cultivate it, cause it to grow into its full potential and beauty. So there's two dynamics here. It's the protective sense, but also the productive sense of cultivating, which is intended for growth and beauty. So when God is talking to people who have flippantly treated their covenant with the wife of their youth, the companion of their youth, he's appealing to them, take heed to your spirit, protect it. Keep your spirit in marriage means guarding your affections from crossing boundaries where it shouldn't go and also cultivating your affections to grow in beauty. In other words, when God says, keep your spirit, take heed to your spirit. He's talking to people in these marriage relationships and says, don't go on autopilot, right? Don't go on autopilot. It's an appeal we all should take seriously, whether or not we are in those relationships. It's, we're, we're talking about relationships of intimacy, and how do we do that? We've got to take heed to our spirit. God's not done. He wants them to, to understand how deeply he feels about this. And in verse 16, to these people who are mistreating the, the companion of their youth so that they can follow the folly of idolatry and things like that, it says, For the Lord... God of Israel says that he hates divorce. There aren't too many things in the Bible that describe what God hates. God definitely feels strongly about this. What these priests, these spiritual leaders, and then subsequently the people are doing themselves. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Why? For it covers one's garment with violence says the Lord of hosts, and then the appeal is repeated. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He hates what's going on. 
when we don't take heed and instead deal treacherously in our relationships of intimacy and trust, in our commitments, in our, in our vows, he hates that. The reality is, and let's be real, the reality is that divorce at times may be the healthiest option of two evils, so to speak. Though it's far from ideal, God still hates divorce as a selfish means to get one's way. He hates the damage it does. He hates what leads up to it. He is broken over it. Why does he care about this? Because in Genesis 2, the very beginning, marriage and the family, and the family it produces, is supposed to be what reflects the very image of God. This is, the, this is what's supposed to... I mean, this is what I gave to humanity to reveal who I am. And it's something that post-fall we still have in this broken world. And anytime there is a marriage that is built on Christ, it reveals the image of God. People are supposed to be able to look at that family. People are supposed to be able to look at those relationships centered on Jesus and say, Oh, that's who God is. When the interactions aren't just about what I get out of it, but what I can give to it. That's who God is. This is why God cares. It's supposed to reveal the character of an all-loving, all-giving God. Marriage is to be an earthly reflection of God's heavenly commitment to us. Why? Because we're his bride. Right? We're his companion. And so, when these individuals, the, the remnant community, when they were treating marriage as something as disposable, it fell horribly short of displaying two things. One, the eternal nature of God's commitment to us and the infinite price of God's commitment to us. It did violence to his character. And God just wasn't going to lie down and just let it happen. He's going to say something about it. We're talking about giving God our best and the reason why they weren't boiled down to two dynamics. I'm sure that there were multiple things happening. There, I'm sure there were multiple uh, issues and circumstances, but... God had to put a finger on spiritual leadership and spousal loyalty. The fact that Israel could treat the marriage covenant so lightly is a reflection, really, on how lightly they viewed the spiritual covenant between them and God. Like, if if I can do this and just kind of throw away the companion of my youth, then surely my commitment to God is disposable as well. Just as easily as they abandon the literal wife of their youth, they feel that they can wash their hands of their spiritual covenant with Jesus. No wonder the people neglected to give God their best. No wonder they, in chapter 1, they were just giving God their leftovers. They were going through these motions in spiritual leadership and spousal loyalty. But I am, I don't know, maybe you're, you're hearing this and you're saying, wow, that's the remnant back then. Is that the remnant now? And you're kind of sensing in your own heart, this This is a sad picture, (laughs) to say the least. But the redemptive reality is that even when we see the shortcomings of the remnant back then, or even the remnant now, this highlights all the more the excellence and beauty of Jesus. Sure, I have failed. We have failed to be the priests that God has called us to. Sure, I am a man who has failed to be the priest that I've been called to in my home. Sure, I am a a follower of Jesus that has failed to be a priest for the neighborhood that he has planted me in. But you know who is a faithful high priest? His name is Jesus. (laughs) I am so thankful that Jesus is the faithful priest, faithful to the covenant, whose walk always matches his talk, that we can trust him 
turn to him, look to him as the one that we can learn from and lean upon. He is the faithful priest. He is the faithful priest who keeps this covenant of peace that results in life for you and I. And sure, you know, maybe, maybe we haven't been faithful in our, in, our, in our marriages. Maybe we haven't been faithful in our covenant vows, in our human relationships, but I am so thankful. I mean, Isaiah tells us that God says, I am your husband. I am so thankful that Jesus is the faithful husband, the one who has given himself for his bride, though his bride has been unfaithful to their covenant vows. He's always been faithful to us. And that same oneness, you know, that spirit-driven oneness talked about here in verse 15, that same oneness that a husband and a wife share is the same oneness that he has made possible through the blood of Jesus. And that someday soon we'll see our heavenly groom come for us in the clouds of glory. What a day that will be. I can love a Savior like that. (laughs) Can you trust a God like that today? He is a faithful priest. Yeah, we need to fess up and be honest with our sense of a broken priesthood. We have not been faithful to our covenant, our trust, our sacred calling to be the priests and light of the world. But he is a faithful priest who will save us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him. We haven't been faithful in our, in our marriages. We haven't been faithful in our family relationships. But he is a faithful husband who, through the blood of Jesus, can transform even the most sin-sick heart. So let's connect some dots here before we wrap up. Connecting the dots between marriage and ministry. They seem to be kind of like uh, almost at random pulled out of a hat and God says, here, this is what the issues are. Now, though one is up front, talking about spiritual influence and ministry, the other is up close, the one is public and the one is personal, God is still keenly interested that we give him our best in these two dynamics. And maybe you're saying, I don't have... A ministry. I'm not married right now. No, no, no. We're talking about uh, our influence, our spiritual influence, and also our interactions. God is keenly interested that we give him our best in these two dynamics, in these two realms. Why? Because it's in these two arenas that the character of God has greatest potential to be maligned. It's in these two arenas that, has, that the character of God has... has uh, Greatest potential to either be maligned or magnified. And both must therefore be treated reverently and responsibly. So just going through the motions isn't going to cut it. Just going, just showing up as, you know, in your family circle, just showing up in your, your uh, uh, faith community and stuff. The, going through the motions actually ends up causing many to stumble instead of turning many away from iniquity. But, when we give God our best in ministry and marriage, we have great potential for saving impact. It turns many away from iniquity. It reveals the glory of God from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. That what he says, he actually does. That he himself walks the walk and proves true to his word. That's the potential that we have when we are faithful in our ministry, our spiritual influence, whether in the home or outside of the home. When we're faithful in our marriages, in our commitments and relationships, we have that potential to reveal the glory of God. We reveal the very image of the God who loves us with an everlasting love. So no one is ever left to ask like this remnant does in chapter 1, how has God loved us? No, we should never ever give anyone an excuse to ask, how has God loved us? 
When we're faithful in our ministry and we're faithful in our marriage, it will reveal the love of God. And so maybe you're asking, well, how how then do we do this? How do we give God our best in ministry and in marriage and not settle just for going through the motions or giving God our leftovers? Yes, we're just kind of swallowing or chewing this uh, chapter in, taking it in right now. Uh, Two things I would say. Number one, focus on the family. That's just kind of my, my the, the way I coined this phrase. Focus on the family. When you're in ministry, when you recognize that you have leadership, responsibility, and influence, um, give yourself this new paradigm that those that I lead are my family. Right? In verse 10, that question there, that question there in verse 10, it says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So why are you dealing like this with your brothers, with your sisters? Right? It's supposed to, this idea of God as our father, God as our creator, and us as a family, it's supposed to inspire two things, humility and responsibility. Right? It's supposed to inspire humility in the sense that we can humbly embrace the influence God has entrusted each of us with whether we have a title or not, whether we have a position or an office or not. And we begin to take responsibility. We begin to say, you know what, God, you you deserve the best in my unique role, whether it's as a parent, as as a son or daughter, as a leader of a Sabbath school, as a song leader, or whatever the case might be. We begin to give God our best in our unique roles of responsibilities and spheres because we want to give our best to the family. When tempted to depart from the plain path of righteousness, maybe we can keep the faces of our followers before us and say, how can I do this to my family? When you're tempted to depart from the wrong and and give just leftovers in your ministry or sense of responsibility and calling, ask yourself the question, how can I do this to my family? So focus on the family. Remember who you are and who you belong to. And then, lastly, take heed to your spirit. Guard it. Keep it. Stand watch over it. Protect it from going outside of its bounds and, 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 and invest in it so you can produce the beauty that's supposed to bear fruit. Take heed to your spirit. Keep it like a flame. You know, guard, on the guarding side, you keep the flames of your affection from burning outside of its boundaries. Fires are beautiful. I mean, people like, you get screensavers and stuff just to show, you know, kind of nice flames and things like that. But when fire is outside of where it should be, that gets dangerous. You call 911, right? Whole towns are destroyed and things like that. So guard it. Keep the flames of your affection from burning outside of its boundaries. But then also grow it. Keep the flames of your affection fueled. Cultivate companionship. Forge your friendship in those intimate relationships. Do you want God to lead you in these things? I I desperately want to be faithful in marriage and in ministry, in my relationships, in my responsibilities. How many of you want to today say, yeah, I I want to let God do this in me. Amen. Amen. Today, you know, we're going to close with a song, familiar hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd. And let's let God lead us. Let's let him lead us into living lives of faithfulness.